You turn over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be looking at uh, this week and probably next week, the man of sorrows, and speaking of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, it's just a very uh, heart-wrenching text of Scripture. It's hard to understand, to be honest with you, um, the sorrow and the grief that Christ went through on our account, and um, when you look at the life of Christ, you study his life, he truly was a... uh, the Bible says, a man of sorrows. And there's no record at all of Christ in the Scriptures ever laughing. Not one. And you see these lighthearted pictures of Christ, and I, I wonder sometimes if they're rather inappropriate because, I mean, I think it would be kind of hard to deal with the disciples and not laugh at on occasion. But, and we know that Laughter and humor is part of life. Proverbs tells us that it makes the heart merry, that it's good for us to have those times. But in the life of Christ, you don't see that, uh, at least in the Bible. There are statements about his grief. There are statements about his sorrow. There are statements about his sighing out loud and crying and feeling sad. Remember, he wept over Lazarus at the grave. Uh, not because Lazarus died. He knew he was going to heal. He was going to raise him from the dead. That wasn't why he was crying. He was crying, I think, because he saw the, the, the depth of the depravity of sin and what it caused. Um, also, he wept in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. It says he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he sees the wicked, unbelieving population and it causes him to weep. Um, but when you stop and you... Think about it. There's been no sorrow really in his life. Usually if you think somebody's stricken with grief and sorrowful, boy, they've had a tough life. They had something hard happen to them somewhere along the line. But there was no sorrow of disease in Christ's life. There was no sorrow of unbelief. There was no sorrow of disobedience, clearly because he was God, or of ignorance or rejection we, we don't see him touched by those kind of things. And yet, in the end of his life, we see him experiencing this horrific situation in the garden in Matthew 26. The Lord knew sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow, but not because of the sin in his life. Because he was perfect. But I think it, it was an accumulation. It was... Maybe a kind of like taking a microscope and just intensifying the amount of sorrow that we experienced because of our sin. And it was placed upon him who never, ever experienced sin personally. And that's why it's hard to understand this passage at times because him being God knew exactly what was going to happen in the plan of God. And yet he's petitioning the Father if maybe there's another way out of this um, I would be open to that. And it's kind of profound, some of the statements he makes in this passage. And we find here that we stand and look at this God-man, 100% God, 100% man. We're fully aware that he is God, and yet we see him suffer pain as a human being. And sometimes that's hard to, to wrap our mind about around. But 
I want you to follow along as I read the text for us out of Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. And I don't know if we'll get through all this today or not, but we'll try. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with him, Peter, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not... Watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. So leaving them again, he went away. And prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, this is a very, uh, you might say, powerful passage. It speaks of the suffering of our, of our Lord in this place called the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was captured and taken to a mock trial and executed. We've seen Jesus and his disciples being kind of prepared for this moment up to this point. We saw how the religious leaders were setting to plot and capture Christ, and all that happened in God's time. We saw Mary who anointed him For his burial, understanding more than probably anybody else what was going to happen to her Lord and Savior. We saw even Judas who was readied for his betrayal and set out to betray him. We saw how the Lord had a last supper, as it's called, with his disciples. Ending that final Jewish economy of the Passover. And declaring it to be the Lord's Supper, a thing that we celebrate here today. We saw him warn the disciples that they were going to go through um, some pretty tough situations when he was captured. And he said that you guys would scatter, and they all declared their allegiance in word anyway. See, all those things are preparation for this, this one event that will happen hours from now. Um, and it's a struggle that Christ has to go through because it, it's a struggle that has to take place to be totally in harmony with the eternal plan of God. And finally, to defeat Satan and evil as we know it in this world. And so he uses this section of Scripture right before his execution 
as one last time to draw his disciples together and to teach them. That's really what he's doing here. He's teaching them a lesson. And it, the lesson basically is down in verse 41. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Is weak. He wanted them to understand that by the time they left this garden area. They wanted, he wanted them to see him in the midst of, of sorrow and struggle. And even in the midst of his own struggle, he used that as a way to teach his disciples what was just around the corner for them and that they should not fall into temptation. So it's really a, a lesson on how to face temptation, how to deal with this. The Lord becomes a pattern, and he says, look at how I'm dealing with this. I'm being tempted to walk away from this cup that I have to drink of, this horrible situation that I'm about to encounter. But the Lord becomes the example here. Now, look at verse 36, just to kind of set the setting here and understand where we're at in the text. He says, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. That word then there is really intended to put us into kind of a a chronological flow of things. It's a word of sequence. Uh, When is then? Well, after what just happened happened, now we're moving into a new event here. What had just happened? The Lord had stopped on the Mount of Olives, remember, to tell his disciples that, you know what, eventually you guys are all going to leave me. You're going to betray me. You're going you're to leave me. Judas is going to betray me. And they were going to forsake him. And they were going to, the, the word he uses would be, they're going to be scandalized, offended, trapped. And they were going to deny him, and they're going to run away from him. And, and their response to that was what? No, that's never going to happen. I mean, Peter's the one that vocalized it, but all the other ones chimed in as well. We would never do that. We'll die for you. Now, remember, it's midnight Thursday, a little after midnight probably, the last week of our Lord's life. All the years, 30-some years of ministry are over. Three-some years of ministry, 30 years of life are going to be over pretty soon. Uh, the Galilean ministry, the Judean ministry, even the ministry over in, in uh, Perea, east of the Jordan. It's all over. All the miracles, all the healings. Now he's come back to Jerusalem at the Passover, depending on your calendar, 30 or 33 A.D., whatever you like there. And he had come not only to be in a Passover celebration, to celebrate that with his disciples, but we found out that he came to be the Passover lamb of all time. And so Thursday was the day to get ready because that evening they ate the Passover. And so the disciples were making the Passover ready. And you think Thursday, it's a long day. I mean, there's a lot to do. And Thursday evening, they had a a wonderful Passover meal together with their Lord. The meal is over. The final hymn was sung, the halal and the great halal. And they went out and um, they left the upper room. And Jesus gave them teaching before they left that we saw over in the Gospel of John. And they've gone through the city of Jerusalem with all the, the people, all the packing in with the crowds, and, and because of the holiday and the, the Passover and everything, it's like a giant festival at night. They probably go out the gate north of the temple, which would be the eastern gate, and they walk down the slope 
of the Temple Mount across the valley of Kidron, and the, the brook is probably red. The water's probably red from all the slaughtering that's been going on in the temple, just filled with blood. And they start to make their way up to the Mount of Olives. And this is a familiar trail for them. This isn't some, well, where are we going? Do you know? He, he wanted to get away, and they, when they wanted to get away, this is where they would go. Out of the hustle bustle of the city, out kind of in the suburbs a little bit, across the way from the Temple Mount, where the Mount of Olives is, and people would put gardens there because they couldn't obviously have them in the city. There's not enough room. And it would be that, that garden of Gethsemane that apparently... Um, they were not, uh, they were familiar with. They were very familiar with it. They'd probably been there several times. Um, but they come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's going to be in that very place, in this very place that we're talking about right now, where Jesus was going to be taken prisoner just hours from now. It's imminent, it's any moment. But before that, can occur, something else has to happen. There has to be a time of intercession with his Father. And the Lord uses that time, not only just for himself, hey guys, get away from me, I want to go pray, but he uses that time as a, as a time of instruction, as he always did with his disciples, the ones he loved. He was always trying to instruct them. And it gives us some insight on how to deal with temptation in very severe cases. Um, now, he says there that it says he came to a place called Gethsemane. That word literally means olive press. There's, we were over there, we saw several olive trees just up on the Mount of Olives. There's not as many, obviously, as there were back then, but there are some. And, you know, they, they, they use these olives, and, and, and Gethsemane means olive press. And it was obviously on a hillside. We don't know who the garden belonged to, but back in John 18, 2, it says that uh, Jesus went there often with his disciples. So this wasn't the first place, they, the first time they'd been there, but it was a place of privacy. It was, it was kind of a place away from everybody, the busyness of the festivals and all that stuff, where he could go and be uninvolved just for a brief time before his uh, arrest and persecution and, and execution. Um, but we don't know. The Bible doesn't say who owned the garden. And it seems like there's nameless people throughout the life of Christ who give him certain things, right? Whether it's a house to stay in or whether it's a donkey or whether it's this or whether it's that. Um, William Barclay says this, uh, of a, a, a desert of hatred, there are a few oases of love and some nameless people who are not unknown to God, but to us gave to Jesus in those final hours what he needed. You know, so whether it's, it's somebody lending him a colt to ride in, an animal or a house or here a garden to stay in, we don't know who it was, but God knows. And so he brings his disciples to this place. And he says to his disciples as they're entering the garden, and this is important to understand, sit here while I go over there and pray. And so that was probably, the, the gardens would have gates around them. And, and probably, you know, he would enter the gate and, and he knew that the crowds were going to be coming for him. He knew that. So he probably left, 
you know, the, the disciples that didn't go with him, the three that didn't go with him, he probably left them hanging there at the, the gate. They may not have even gone in the garden. They may just be out there hanging around the gate. Because it says he only took three with him. He said, sit here a while while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, right? And a lot of people say, well, why, did he, why didn't he take all of them? Well, I think the reason he took those three is it's kind of simple. They're leaders. If you look throughout, I mean, throughout the, the disciples, they're the ones that are always kind of stepping up and, and leading the rest of the crew. And, and this lesson that he wanted to teach them, he wanted to give this lesson to somebody who could pass it on. To the rest of the disciples. Plus he needed somebody to hang back there and watch and make sure that they were safe in that area, at least for this meantime, until this, this prayer and, and this intercession could take place. Um, and so the disciples were told to stay there, and then he takes the, the three other ones with him. And it says that he began to be sorrowful, and troubled. Now, when he says, sit here while I go over there and pray, taking with him Peter and, Je- and, and the two sons of Zebedee, it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And that's the first point, that Christ was a man of sorrow. We sang about it in the hymn. Man of sorrow. Okay? Um, it's very important to understand that, that Jesus Christ wasn't some jovial jokester in his life. As I said before, he was very serious-minded. Everything he did with a purpose. Every word he spoke had a, a purpose, had a divine reason. And, you know, the Bible says the similar things to us that, you know, we need to sometimes be careful of our behavior. We have to be careful of the words that we speak because... You know what? It, it, it could be offensive to somebody. It could, it could hurt somebody. We, who knows? You may not even know it. And I'm, I'm constantly having to rein in my tongue in my life, just knowing that, okay, you know what? That wasn't very honoring of God or whatever. Uh, you're driving down the freeway and somebody pulls out, whatever it might be. You, know, you idiot! You know, what are you thinking? You know, I mean, you know, those things aren't honoring to Christ. And, and Christ never did anything like that. And yet he had more than opportunity for things like that to, to happen in his life, for him to get frustrated, for him to be, be uh, just irritated at the disciples for not doing what they said they were going to do or whatever it might be. But he never responds that way because he was always, he, he's God, he's sinless, he's perfect. But he tells them in, in verse um, 41, he says, watch and pray, be on alert and spend your time in, in prayer. Okay, is basically what he's what he wants them to understand. And you say, well, why was Christ so filled with sorrow? All you have to do is look at Isaiah fifty-three. If you look at Isaiah fifty-three, just turn back there with me briefly, and you'll you'll see very clearly why he was a man of sorrow when you had this kind of a weight uh, hanging around your neck your whole life as a human being. He was a human being, but he was fully God as well, sinless in every way. But it says in Isaiah 53, look at verse, um, oh, we'll just start at the beginning. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And this is speaking of Christ. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You know, you see these movies of Christ and he's got this flowing hair. You know, he looks like, I don't know who else, somebody, you know, one of those guys with the, it looks like they're on the Brett commercial or something, you know. Um, that, that wasn't Christ. That's just not how he's depicted in Scripture. Um, it says in verse 3, it says he was despised, okay? He was, what, rejected. All those, all those words there have, have clear um, meanings, you know, they're not just saying that, well, he was having a, a hard time here dealing with this. No, he was filled with sorrow because he was despised, but he was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Men hid their faces. He was despised. He was esteemed not. It says, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, it says. We have all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. Verse 7 says he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth, but oppression and judgment. He was ta- by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. I mean, you can go on and on, yet it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You know, this, this whole situation of Christ being in this circumstance was, was not happenstance. It wasn't just, oh man, I messed up, I should have had better security, you know, then I wouldn't have got arrested and I could have had better disciples protect me. No, this is all part of God's plan. This is all playing out um, for the perfect will of God. Now when he says there, I'm going to go and I'm going to pray, all right, this isn't just the normal word for prayer. It's, it's, it's really a, a intense word. Um, and it's used when, when people are in circumstances where they find themselves having to cry out to God from a very uh, tough situation. So he says, I'm going to go talk to God. I'm going I'm to deal with my Father. And I'm going to pour out my heart to Him. And so he leaves his disciples, with the exception there of Peter, James, and John. And he, he takes, goes a little further there, it says. And then in verse 38, it says, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I mean, I read that and I'm thinking, okay, maybe, maybe somebody in, on death row would feel maybe a tiny, 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 tiny portion of what Christ is about to go through. Knowing 
that at any moment they're going to come down, they're going to take you in chains to a room, and they're going to inject you or hook you up to electrodes and basically kill you, execute you. I mean, if that awaited you in the next couple hours, I mean, can you imagine what would be running through your mind? See, I can't even imagine that. I can't think that way. I mean, I'm sure you'd be thinking of your family. You'd be thinking, boy, what if I just wouldn't have done this, or if I wouldn't have done that. But in the situation Christ finds himself in, it's a perfect plan of God. It's not a situation he finds himself out in because of his own sin or because of something else or because of that. No, he's willingly in, embracing this. And so he takes Peter, James, and John with him because they were the leaders of the, the group there. And it says he went a little uh, further. He says, remain here and watch with me. He asks his, his little leadership team to kind of come with him. And then he says, you know what, I want you guys to hang out here and kind of watch with me, pray with me. Be alert. Understand the situation. What's going on here? I mean, they should have gotten it. They should have understood it, but they had no clue. They really didn't. I mean, how many times has he gone over, look, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders, I'm going to be executed, all this stuff, and it just seems to go right over their heads. And so here, he's crying out to them, and he's saying, hey, stay here and watch with me. And then it says in verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. He fell on his face and he prayed. I mean, I know that he didn't take Peter, James, and John with him because he needed them there. I mean, he was God. He's the Son of God. No, he's, he took them because they're the leaders and they, he wanted them to stay alert and watch what he goes through. And so maybe he goes 30, 50 yards beyond them. Luke says it's a stone's throw. We don't know how far it was exactly, but it was far enough to see what was going on with him. So he wanted, he wanted them to be able to see this and experience this with him. Um. Now, it says that he fell down on his face. Okay? That's, that's a position of humility. That's, that's a position of, you know, he, he's crying out to his father and he's saying, hey, you know what, I am, I am stricken to the point even here of death. And he prays this. Look at what he says. My father, if it's possible... Let this cup, what cup? The cup of suffering that he's about to drink of. If there's another way, if there's another plan, let this cup pass from me. I mean, can you imagine, here you have the Son of God, the sinless, perfect Son of God, but I think in the same place you also have the devil. And you have the devil thinking, all right, I can't allow this to happen. i got to figure out a way to, you know, everybody thinks, oh, well, gee, you know, the devil wanted Christ to die. No, I don't think the devil wanted Christ to die. 
Once he died on the cross, then he tried everything he could to keep him in the grave, but that couldn't happen. But see, that was the turning point for Satan, for all of hell that's against Christ. Is when he actually went to the cross, was able to go to the cross, give up his life, and take upon the sins of the world and die. That was the turning point. Then it's like it's, it's pretty much game over for Satan and his minions. So up to this point, I think Satan is trying everything he can. He's pulling out everything out of his arsenal to tempt Christ to somehow bypass this situation. And now remember, Jesus was God, yes, but he was also man. He was also man. I mean, here's Jesus about ready to take on something that he knows is, is going to be difficult in his humanity, but he knows the outcome as well. I mean, he knows he's God. He knows he'll be raised from the dead. He'll know that he'll be exalted. He knows all that. But you see here that he still needs, he still cries out to his father. You see the humility here? You contrast that with the, the, the pride of the disciples in Peter. When Christ told them, this is God telling you something, he's not going to lie to you, you will depart, you will run away from me, you will grow weak and, and, and run and hide, you won't have one having to do with me. And they all said, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Guaranteed. We'll die with you, Jesus. I mean, how prideful that was. And yet here you see this, this humility in Christ. And I'm not saying that in his humility or in his humanity, I mean, you have to understand, are you saying that he was weak in his humanity? Yeah, he was. Because he was human. The suffering wouldn't have any purpose if, if it... If somehow he could just be like a superhero and overcome all this and it'd be, make no, no big deal. Yeah, go ahead, put the nails in my hand. They don't bother me. I'm a superhero. Nothing bothers me. That would be ridiculous. No, he had to go through this whole thing as a human being, as a man, and experience the suffering and the pain and the agony. Sinful, fallen humanity will not acknowledge its own weakness. But unfallen, sinless humanity here in Christ clearly acknowledges it. Peter and the apostles, oh, no, 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 that's not, that's not a weakness we have, Jesus. Not at all. So Jesus was fully human. He knew that in humanity there was weakness. That's just the truth of, of the matter. Tears are a sign of human Weakness. Because why? They're a sign of pain. I'm not saying men shouldn't cry. I'm not saying it in that way. But clearly, if you're superhuman, okay, you're, you're going to be untouched by the pain of this world. Therefore, you would never cry. It served no purpose. Agony is a sign of human weakness. Suffering is a sign of human weakness. I mean, God knows no pain, no agony, no suffering. Eternal God in deity, except for that which he chooses to consider on behalf of man when you stop and think about it. 
So Jesus Christ could literally die, and that showed his weakness. He could hurt. He could feel pain. He could hunger. All those things are signs of weakness. He could thirst. He knew humanity was weak. And he knew in his unfallen sinlessness what those crazy disciples would never acknowledge. He knew exactly what he was talking about when you enter into a severe trial. And if you're human, you have to be careful and you have to look to God. There's no way you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get through it. See, they flunked that that test, but he passed it. He passed it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, We have not a high priest, speaking of Christ, who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points, what's it say, tempted, right? Like as we are, yet without sin. Christ went through... A lot more, really, than than a lot of us go through in our lives as a human being. And so here, you have to understand, when you go to the Lord Jesus Christ with your needs, you're not talking to some high priest who has no, can't even relate. You know, just in another world. No, you're talking to somebody who's been... Um, touched with the feelings of weakness. He, he knows weakness. He feels that infirmity. He's touched with the feelings of infirmity. He knows what it is to experience human weakness. Not with sin, obviously, because it says yet without sin, but it's still weakness. And when he went, to that cross and in that garden and all the suffering and the sorrow and the grief in his life, everything he experienced as a human being, Satan has him kind of where he wants him. Hey, if I can get him to think there's a way out of this somehow, I can maybe tempt him to change course. I mean, Satan tried that once before with him. Didn't work, but he tried it. See, to me, that shows me the determination of Satan himself. See, he's already gone down this road with Christ once, trying to tempt him to, to do certain things, and Christ answered with Scripture and, and came out of it victorious, right? It was still a trial. It was still a temptation. Actually, the angels had to come minister to him. And I mean, that, it shows me that Satan doesn't give up in our lives. Satan knows what best tempts us, what sins we easily give into. I mean, it's my, my understanding. I mean, there's not a whole lot that Satan has to do for most of us. We just kind of fall into it by ourselves. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we live in such a fallen world. There's sin all around us. It doesn't take, you don't have to work too hard to find it, if that's your intent. But once in a while, you get on a victorious kind of a, a, a path in your life and you're living pretty good and you're living strong spiritually and everything and, and, and all of a sudden you might feel a little prideful. You might feel like, wow, you know, I'm doing pretty good. But Satan knows where exactly to come back and hit you at the right time to have you fall once again into sin. 
See, Jesus' ministry began and ended with a severe temptation. That's what the Bible says. You go all the way back to Matthew chapter 4 and you find Satan. After the 40 days of feasting or fasting and all that, he comes. I mean, how many times did Jesus go to pray here? Here, three times. How many waves of temptation came to Jesus? Three. I don't know. But I think that it's important to understand that in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, take the sword of the Spirit, praying always. All right, that we, we need to understand that Jesus was a man of sorrow. But he also, he also clearly was a man of prayer. And that's what we find him doing in verses 39 to 45. First time he asks, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It says in verse 40, he came to his disciples and he found them what? Sleeping. You know, even though he asked them to pray, there's no indication that they even uttered one word of prayer. Nothing. I mean, I, I've been in situations where, you know, the end of the night and you're kind of tired and, and maybe you've got to you know, close off with a prayer and it's, you just make it a quick one because you know you're going to be out. But at least you give it an attempt, you know. I mean, these guys didn't do anything. And you say, well, they had a long day. Yeah, they did. They t- totally had a long day. I mean, they've been up all day preparing for the Passover, eating the Passover. They get their, their stomachs are full. They ate the whole lamb they had to before the next morning. So all that's gone. That's in their body. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, plus it's, it's past midnight. I don't know what your clock is, but past midnight, I don't do too well anymore. We had the grandkids here for about a month, and, and Will and Crystal were able to get up to Napa for one night and stay in a hotel up there with some friends. And so the kids stayed with us. And before mom and dad left, one of, I think it was Mason, you know, can we stay up all night with grandpa and grandma? And Crystal, oh, yeah, sure, you know, ha-ha. And they left, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, great, you know. But I thought I've always wanted to see if this, what happens if you push kids to the limit. So, a little experiment here. So, we got the mattresses out in the, in the living room there and, you know, got some videos that we could watch and different games we could play, whatever it might be. And, and uh, I think Gabby lasted till 4.30 in the morning, which was just amazing to me. And her and Grandma made their exit. I went in the room and kind of laid down and the TV's still going and then the TV was off and it was kind of quiet. They were still talking. At 6 o'clock, I must have fell asleep. At 6 o'clock, Mason and Sophia both come in my room because I heard my alarm go off at 5.30 or whatever. Hey, Grandpa, are we going to the coffee shop now? And I looked at both of them and I thought, you know what? These guys hadn't slept a wink. They were up all night. And I thought, wow. And I told Crystal, and she said, what are you thinking? I said, you're the one that said it was okay. You know, She didn't think they could do it. But, you know, we all slept until noon and got back on schedule quick. But here are the disciples, yeah, they're tired. They've had a long day, you know, and it's, 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 it's past midnight. But it's also, you know, a situation here. I mean, if somebody calls you at one in the morning and says, hey, you know what? Um, I, just, I just had a heart attack. I need a ride to the ER. Can you come over and give me? You're not going to go, hey, pal, it's one o'clock in the morning. No, thank you. You know, and hang up. No, you're going to get up and you're going to understand the the 
the uh, seriousness of the situation and go help your friend get to the ER or whatever you have to do. You could be dog tired and you're still going to do it. These guys had no indication of urgency here at all. They were just tired. It says they found, he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me just one hour? Which gives him the indicator. That's kind of how, how long this was. And you notice, Peter doesn't answer, because he's probably still sleeping. Verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And here's that lesson, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. Right? Do you ever wonder why prayer is such a hard activity for Christians to do? I mean, it is for me, it's just difficult. It's difficult. I mean, you know, you pray over food and you pray at the end of the day or the beginning of the day and you pray throughout the day, certain situations. But when's the last time you spent two or three hours in prayer? When's the last time you spent 10 minutes in prayer? 15 minutes in prayer? See, I mean, it's something that just is not natural for us to do. So he says in verse 42, it says there, so again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed. And look at what he says this time. He says, my father, notice who he's praying to each time. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, this cup of suffering, your will be done. These are very, the thing I notice about Jesus' prayers here, at least what's indicated here in Scripture, these aren't things that are, there's some big, you know, lofty prayer. They're pretty practical prayers, aren't they? I mean, sometimes I think when we go to prayer, we think that we have to kind of almost, you know, we, we, we speak a different language or something. Oh, Heavenly Father, our voice gets lower and, you know, we become all, you know, religious. And, and I think what I see here between Jesus and the Father was, you know what, he's just crying out. He's just bearing his soul. He's just sharing what's on his heart. I mean, God sees it anyway, right? God sees your heart. I mean, so many times we think we've got to go to God and, and somehow we've got to butter him up for five or ten minutes and then finally get to the point what we want to ask him for, right? I mean, that's what we do. God, I know you can provide the, you know, you own the cattle on a thousand, you know, oh, you're and by the way, Lord, I'm a little short this month, so if you could help me out, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> he knew that's all you wanted. You know, let's, let's, be, let's be honest when we go before God. Let's not try to put on a ruse. Let's not try to be somebody we're not. But he says, my father, if this cup, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done. And I'm going to kind of summarize these, these prayers here a little bit at the end of the, the, the message. But I think that's an important thing. He just said, hey, if there's no way out of this, okay, that's good to go. It says in verse 43, And again he came, and he found them sleeping. It says, For their eyes were heavy. They were tired. That kind of shows the compassion, the mercy of the Lord. He understands that. You know, he he knew they were going to fall asleep. Right? Remember, this is a, a lesson for them. He knew they were going to fall asleep. But he still asked them not to, but they still did. 
Verse 44, so leaving them again, it says, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. He was a man that understood in his humanity, he needed to kind of talk to the Father here. That this was going to be a very difficult time uh, in his life that he was about to undergo all the, the horrific thing we're going to find out here toward the end of, the, of Matthew. I mean, I don't think that Jesus got up from this, these prayer things and said, okay, I still got to do it. All right, let's go, let's go. No, I don't think it was a, a, I think that he was sincerely sorry, sorrowful. Every single thought of anticipation of that cross dwelt in his omniscience. And everything about him in his deity was kind of repulsed by what the cross was. Because everything in it he despised. He despised the guilt, he despised the sin, he despised the death, the isolation, the loneliness, the estrangement from God. All that stuff, he wasn't looking forward to that. This is not something he just coolly and calmly engaged in as if it was just another day in the life of Christ. No, he was, in his humanity, probably horrified at the thought of what was about to happen to him. See, and that should give you, I pray that gives you a fresher understanding, a better understanding of the love and the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you. This wasn't a walk in the park for him. It says over and over again, he was filled with sorrow to the point of death, and it just consumed him. Understand this, he not only died on the cross when he died on the cross, but he died on the cross every conscious moment before he died on the cross. Because in his knowledge, he lived through every second of that, of his own death. Because he knew it was all going to happen the way it was going to happen. He fully understood everything. He fully experienced it even before it happened. And that's why he was a man of sorrow and acquainted with much grief. And so we see that Christ was a man of sorrow, a man of prayer. But also, he was a man of strength. Look at verse 45. It says, Then he came to his disciples and said to them, and they're still sleeping, by the way, Sleep and take your rest later on. In other words, what he's basically saying, this isn't the time or place for this. Sorry, but it's not. Sleep and take your rest later on. I would love to hear a pastor say that when someone falls asleep in church one day. (laughs) I think it's kind of scriptural, actually. He says, see, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. See, he didn't shy away from this. You see the, the, the strength of the Lord come up. You know, when you, when you look at Christ, you see a man who is humble in every way, and yet he was filled with strength. He tells his disciples, rise, get up, let's get going. My betrayer's at hand. He didn't say, okay, get ready, here they come. 
hijack them at the gate, and then we'll run out the back. Got to get out of here. No, that's not what he said. He was willing to what? To endure the cross. I mean, even his own disciples were telling him, no, 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 don't go to the cross, don't go to the cross. That's not a good idea, Jesus. That doesn't work for us. And at one point, he even has to turn to Peter and say, hey, you know what, get thee behind me who? Satan, right? Well, here's Satan once again, trying to deal with his human emotions, trying to deal with all this. When he says that he's exceedingly sorrowful to start off this text, he's speaking the truth. The Bible tells us that he was so, so upset physically in his humanity that he literally, his sweat contained droplets of blood. He was sweating blood from his own body because he was just so distressed with the potential events of the day coming to a close here. And that's, by the way, a a very, it's rare, but it happens, a medical condition that happens with people. The capillaries or whatever burst and it actually mixes with their, it comes out of their pores because they're so stressed out. I mean, and yet at the same time, he knew all along this was going to happen. He said, I've come for this purpose. For this cause I came into the world. And yet he says, you know what, if there's, if there's some other way out of here, <laughs> that's good. But you know what, I want God's will. I want God's plan, not my own. I think that, that in and of itself, when we stop and we think of the strength of being willing to stand up to what Christ is about to go through. And to say, you know what, God, this isn't my kind of first choice in my humanity. I mean, I don't want to go and die on a cross and deal with all this stuff. But you know what? If this is your will, I'm willing to do it. You see his humility. You see his servanthood. You see his, his love for us. This wasn't a walk in the park, as I said earlier. It was a very hard time for Christ. But you see, in the end, he raises up. And he understands perfectly what's at hand. He understands exactly how it's going to play out. And yet he embraces it because he knows that it's, it's God's will. It's God's will for him. How many times have you tried to get out of something? You know, because maybe you were a little uncomfortable in the situation. You know, sometimes we have to Instead of trying to figure out a way out, we need to go to God and say, why am I in this situation? That's fine. Okay, I'm in this situation. At least help me through this process. There's four things quickly that I want you to leave you with about prayer that you can see in this passage. True prayer, and it's not up on the thing. It's not even in your notes, I don't think. True prayer is a prayer to God the Father. That's who Jesus prayed to. And I think that that's important for us to understand that. Um, Jesus always referred to God as his Father, Abba, Father. 
Secondly, effective prayer is according to God's will. Effective prayer is according to God's will. He says, if it's possible, may this cup pass, but you know what? I want your will, no matter what. Well, what's it mean to be, to pray according to God's will? It means putting God and His interests first in your own lives. Right? We sing a song, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in what? Heaven. That's putting God's interests and God's will before our own. Secondly, praying according to God's will really means praying according to what is in the Bible. Sometimes I hear people pray about certain things, and I'm like, why are you praying for that? That's against even Scripture, what you're asking God to do. You have to understand to pray within the the confines of, of Scripture. So those two things help you understand that. Thirdly, you have to be persistent in your prayers sometimes. You have to be persistent in your prayers. Jesus went back to the Father three times, it says. He was God. And yet so many times, yeah, I prayed for that and he didn't answer, so you know, we just give up. You know, There's going to be times, I think, when God leads us into a place called Gethsemane, an olive press, a place where we just feel like the world is closing in around us, we can't breathe, we don't know what to do, we're in a tight spot. We've all been there, we'll all be there again. But we see here that prayer for Christ turned this place of suffering, and it was intense suffering, but it turned it into a place of strength. And we need to stop and we have to ask, what, God, what do you want us to take away from this? I mean, I still don't understand the whole idea of Jesus having to suffer the way he suffered, and I don't understand the intensity in which it was. But then again, I'm not sinless. I'm not the Son of God. So I'm sure that in his situation, given that he was complete deity and yet 100% man as well, feeling everything that we, we, we feel, going through all that, and at any point not sitting here saying, okay, I'm tired of this, game over, I'm God, and I'm not going to do this anymore. The Garden of Gethsemane was a place of suffering and strength. Philippians 4 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by what? Prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I don't know about you, but it helps me sleep a little bit at night knowing that Christ is interceding for me. Because frankly, sometimes, you know, I just mess things up <laughs> to the point where it's like, wow, what, what in the world's going on here? I thank God that, he, you know, he's got my back. He's, he's, he's got it covered. He's willing to embrace me despite my failings and my faults and my sin. Not because of who I am, but because of who his son is and because I've come to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And that same thing is available to everyone here in this room. I pray that you would Look at Christ as someone who, yeah, he, he went through this time of suffering and it was horrific in his life and yet he did it for you. He did it for me. 
He did it because He loved us. And can we say the same thing when we serve Him? Do we do it because we love Him? Or do we do it because it's expected of us? Or it's just the thing we do? What motivates us? Father, we pray this morning, Lord, that You would speak Your truth to our hearts. Lord, we thank You that You're a God who loves us and gave Your only Son for us. Father, we thank You for the suffering that Christ went through on our behalf. Lord, we, uh, we can't really fully understand it, but You've given us just a glimpse of some of the pain and the anguish. Lord, we can't imagine someone who has never even entertained sin at all, and yet upon Him all the sin of all the world was placed. And Father, having the knowledge of knowing how you're going to die and what's going to happen in that process and when it's going to happen. Being with your close friends, knowing that one of them will betray you and the other ones will run from you. And yet, we see the majesty and the glory and the strength that Christ had, even in his humanity, in the end when he faced the cross and he willingly undertook the Father's plan of redemption for all of us. So for that, we're very thankful, Jesus, that you did go to the cross, you did die, that you were raised on the third day, that you came to give us new life, that you came to offer us the forgiveness of sin. The Bible says there's, there's no name, no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved other than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because nobody else has done what he's done for us. And so we pray that you would just make that truth uh, work its way deep into our hearts. As we leave this place today, I pray that we would be reminded of the lost and dying souls that are around us each and every day, that we would be willing to share with them the the life-saving gospel of Christ, the message of hope that the world needs to hear, the message of grace and forgiveness and love. It's only available through Christ. If there's any here today who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray that they would cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. Thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a song.